I'm going to start by reading the text that we're going to go through tonight. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let women learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Oops. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So Josh already stole my line. This is my first time speaking, and whenever they decided to go through 1 Timothy as the book study for the summer, he thought, oh, what a great idea. It has childbearing in it. Sarah's a midwife. She likes women. This would be a really easy passage for her to speak on. Not so much. We started off in Timothy about a month ago, and for those of you who haven't been here or haven't ever met me before, I'm Sarah, and about a month ago we started in Timothy. The first part that we, we learned was Timothy 1, Chapter 1, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love, love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the whole point of this letter is love, and the love that he's trying to speak into Timothy's life, into the Ephesians in Ephesus, is a love that is supposed to transcend the distance that is there as well as the strife that is going on, and that's really what he's trying to address. By him, I mean Paul. Paul is the writer of this. The second part that we did was the law. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. And we spent the second Sunday looking at what does the law mean, who is the law for, and why do we still need the law, or do we still need the law after Jesus? We then looked at why we don't need the law. Gospel. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, of who I am foremost, the person who killed Christians, the person who persecuted Christians, I am foremost, and I still receive that grace. So then last week we went into 1 Timothy 2, prayer. What should we do? Very, very easy, pray. For whom should we pray? For all people. And it says, but particularly the rulers. For all kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. Why should we pray? Easy. It's good and pleasing to God who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Here comes the fun part. How should we pray? The rest of Timothy chapter 2 is spent in discussing how we should pray basically based on gender. And... That's my job tonight. So in the beginning here, very easy to read, blue and pink. Top part is male, bottom part is female. As you can see, just like in biology class, very little is devoted to men, a lot is devoted to women. We're a little more complicated than the men. So I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. That's what we're going to focus on first. So I love the part here that says... The men should pray, not that men should pray, but the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Holy hands for Jews would have had a very different meaning than it would have for us. Holy hands would have had the connotation of clean versus dirty. 
holy versus unholy. And the whole point we have to remember of Paul writing this letter is because he was writing to a church that was in trouble, a church that had false teachers, a church that had teachers that were teaching something gospel-like, as Josh likes to say, heterominous norms. Did I say it right? Thank you. Um, something like the gospel, but not quite the gospel. And so there were arguments among those who thought they were right. There were intellectual arguments, and they were creating these massive intellectual debates, and Paul's going, hold your horses. It's all about the love, and this is what you need to do. So lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. When you're lifting holy hands and you start being angry or quarreling, you're sullying those holy hands. And so he's saying when you gather to pray, pray. If you want to discuss things, that's fine, but don't start quarreling in anger whenever you're praying. That's all he says to the men. Pretty easy. Women have got a little bit more going on. For the women, they're basically divided up into three different topics. The first part is modesty. The second part is how a woman should learn. And the third part is whether she should teach, how she should teach, and then how she is saved through childbearing. That's not a big question at all. Let me start off by giving you a little bit of my history. I grew up first in Texas, southern girl, pastor's kid, moved to Germany, missionary's kid, all conservative upbringing. Everyone who has grown up in the South or in a conservative church has some type of story related to what, when they found out what women were allowed to do in ministry and what they were told women were allowed to do in ministry or not. And there's usually one story that sticks out more than others in their mind. For me, it was a story one summer when I was between the ages of 11 and 13. I can't remember exactly how old I was. We were home on furlough from Germany. And you come home for three reasons, extreme Texas heat, extreme air conditioning, and extreme fun with youth groups, none of which exists in Germany. So, if you haven't been to Texas, first off, I'm sorry. Second of all, there's this great place called Schlitterbahn. And Schlitterbahn is one of the most wonderful water parks in the world. And it happens to be located in South Texas. In South Texas, um, is a little bit farther away than, say, Southern Maryland would be from the rest of Maryland. So it requires a road trip. And anytime you go on a youth road trip, it's really important which van you get into. So I got into the awesome van. For those of you who remember the GMC vans that had the nice pilot seats that swiveled back and forth. Anybody following me on this one? It was sweet ride all the way down. Great time down at Schlitterbahn. We're riding on our way back. It's dark. What do you do? You were with a van full of girls. You start talking about what you're going to be when you grow up and who you're going to marry and if you want kids. And one of the girls in the van says, well, I think I want to go into ministry. And it got a little bit silent. She said, yeah, I think I want to be a pastor and I think I want to preach. At which point, um, an hour, two hour, three hour long discussion ensued on why she could not be a pastor. She could be a children's minister. She could be a women's minister. She could go to seminary if she really felt called to, but there was just no way that she was ever going to be able to preach. And she's sobbing, and I'm sobbing, and I'm thinking, thank God, I don't ever want to preach. And here we are today. <laughs> Good news to the end of the story. Sweet Kathy just graduated from seminary, that girl, last, um, last month. And she is going to preach. She has been preaching. So there's happy news to that. But all that to say, everyone comes to these type of passages with their own set of baggage, their own set of memories, their own set of what have you, loads and glasses through which we want to read this. So forgive my baggage and give grace whenever I'm not right on what I say here. 
In the scientific world I live in, all presentations start with a disclaimer. Whether it's related to funding or affiliations, my disclaimer is, I'm a feminist. I'm a passionate feminist. None of my bras have been burned. I shave my legs and I wear makeup. However, as Sarah Bessie likes to say, at the core of feminism, feminism simply consists of the radical notion that women are people too. And my life's passion is serving women and empowering women, not to the detriment of men, but merely to support the fact, the radical notion that women are people too. No better or worse, above or below men, both created in God's image and meant to be image bearers alongside each other. And this is how I would like to approach this difficult passage. So we're going to go back to the passage, like I said, divided up into three different parts. First part looking at modesty, which is always a really fun topic, and then moving from there. Modesty and self-control. Likewise, and that's where we're going to stop. Likewise, what is likewise referring to? We've just talked about men, how they're supposed to pray, what position they're supposed to hold, how they're supposed to hold their hands, and that they're supposed to be holy. And so Paul is not saying, oh, and in addition to, but likewise, in the same way, women, in the same way you are supposed to be doing this, women, in the same way you are supposed to be praying. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. The word modesty in English evokes an image for me of a high neck dress, the little ruffles right here, black all the way down, all the way down to your shoes. Growing up, as I already told you, as a PK and an MK, modesty was a big deal in our house. Bikinis did not exist. The advent of the tankini was a really big deal and highly controversial. I don't know if you remember that. I remember standing in the changing room and hunching over just a little bit to see, does it cross over? Can I go out like this? And maybe she won't notice. And maybe if I stand up, there'll be just an eighth of an inch of a skin that maybe someone will see. <sighs> Needless to say, we, we were allowed to wear tankinis, but that was about it. A whole other issue was what you wore to church, and that was a really big deal. How you dressed to go to church was how you approached God in his space, and how you showed honor to God in his space, or at least that's what my mother told me growing up. I have some really fun pictures for you. I don't know if you can see them. This is when my dad was a pastor. We all wore matching things. We had little ruffles. Every Sunday, we had the white lace socks with the ruffles on them. You know what I'm going for, the patent leather shoes between Memorial Day and Labor Day. They were white every other time, except for Easter, they were black. I do have more siblings. We all dressed up the same. We moved to Germany. And guess what they wear to church in Germany? Jeans. They also wear black and blue sweatshirts, and that's about it. Those are the only colors in their wardrobe. So my mother, coming from Texas, decided her children were still going to dress up appropriately for the Lord. And this is what we went to church looking like in Germany. You could always tell where the Morrow children were in their dresses. Eventually, she did give in. We were allowed to wear dress pants, but that was it. No jeans ever. By the way, Mom, when you're listening to this, I'm not wearing jeans. I promise. So modesty, everyone has their own idea of what that is, and every culture has a different idea of what that is. Traveling in the Middle East, when I'm in the Middle East and I go into a mosque, I'm going to cover my head, not because I think I need to cover my head there, but because it's respectful to the people around me and it's respectful to the religion that's there. So in the same way, it would be respectful in this point in time in history for the women to dress appropriately for the time. And that's really all Paul is addressing. 
Luke Timothy Johnson, one of the many commentaries that Josh kindly lent to me, um, or commentators, said, Ados, am I saying that right? Idos, all right. Idos, um, which is the Greek word f that is used in place of modesty, actually has a strong connotation of self-respect. And I love that. I think dressing for self-respect lends so much more validity to the term modesty than something that sounds old-fashioned and completely out of date. Dressing with self-respect, there's nothing controversial about dressing sensibly and without a sense of shame. They also thought a lot of the... Scholars that currently are looking at the time were looking at what is going on in Ephesus. Why did he need to address this? Why were the women dressing inappropriately? Why did he need to address modesty? In Ephesus at the time, there was a cult, the cult of not Athena, which is what I want to say, but Artemis. And there was a massive temple for Artemis there. And Artemis was a female goddess, which meant all of the priestesses in the temple were female. And they ruled the roost. And they dressed the experts very provocatively they had lots of gold and pearls on and so there are two different strains of thought one either Paul was addressing the women who wanted to dress like the priestesses from the Artemis temple or he was saying you guys kind of look like prostitutes the way you're dressing with all the gold and the pearls you kind of look like you could be streetwalkers and either way this is not a good look for a brand new faith you're the only people in Ephesus representing Christianity watch what you look like it's so important for everyone else to see that these women are holy with good works and holy in how they approach the community, not holy in how big their cleavage is and not holy in how much gold they can wear and not holy in how many pearls they can fit in their ear. And that is why we always come back to what is the purpose of the letter? Why did Paul need to address modesty? And why was he addressing it in this specific situation? Does it even apply to us? Do we have a temple of Artemis? Should we still be modest today? Or should we focus on the idea of self-respect, dressing with self-respect, and dressing so that others have respect for us, and watch what we do in the world, watch what we do, how we serve others, the good deeds, professing godliness with good deeds instead of our clothing? Move on to the second part. It just gets better and better as we go. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Clearly, I'm doing an excellent job of that. There was one time I'm not a good person to be quiet, and there's one time my mother's finding out about this for the very first time, that in sixth grade when we were on furlough, um, I was in in an American school for the very first time, and I had no idea what detention was, but I found out very quickly that when you talk in math class, they put you in detention with those kids over lunch, and you don't get to sit with your friends over lunch, but you have to sit in that room with those kids, and you're now one of those kids, and then you have to take a paper home to your mom that she has to sign to say that you were at detention, and she knows you're at detention, and why you're at detention. So needless to say, learning to be silent or quiet has been something that has come very, very difficult to me. But I think the part that we need to focus on is right at the beginning of the verse. Don't look at the quiet, don't look at the submissiveness, look at let a woman learn. Guys, that is radical. Radical. This is coming from Paul. Paul who was a Pharisee, Paul who learned with rabbis. He didn't speak to women. He didn't want women to have anything to do with learning the law or learning anything about Judaism. And here he's writing, let a woman learn. Regardless of what else he's saying, this is a radical notion for Paul. So then we have to ask, what does that mean? Why does he need to add that? What was going on in this situation again that he needed to add quietly with all submissiveness? 
I love Sarah Bessie again on this. She says, imagine if your whole life you had been told you couldn't speak, you couldn't talk, you couldn't learn anything, and all of a sudden they say, go ahead, learn, ask questions. These women were going at it. They were raising their hand, they were yelling, they were interjecting, they were asking questions. It would be like constant popcorn from the crowd out there just asking things. And Paul's going, hold your horses, learn quietly. And the word that he uses is, Lord knows I'm not going to be able to say it, suchia? Sure. All right. In Greek. And the connotation from that is not silence, but quietness and demeanor, stillness. So it doesn't mean you have to be silent. It doesn't mean you're never allowed to speak. It doesn't mean you're never allowed to ask questions. It means learn in stillness, in your posture be still, in your demeanor be still, instead of being disruptive, disrespectful. The next part we move on to is the submissiveness. Typically, when we see submissive in the Bible, we are looking at submission to a husband. Most of the times we see submission in the Bible, we're looking at wives submit to your husbands as in Christ and in the church. This is the first time where we see submission really without anything. It doesn't say to whom, it doesn't say how, it doesn't say why. It just says learn quietly with all submissiveness. And so a lot of the scholars believe that the submissiveness has absolutely nothing to do with the men in the church, but it has everything to do with being submissive to learning and being submissive to God and being submissive to the body of Christ. Lauren Cunningham has a beautiful message-esque, if you know what that translation of the Bible is, colloquial translation that says, you're free to minister, but you must do so responsibly. Stop ministering in a disorderly, disruptive, discourteous, insubordinate way. Your participation in the church must be done in an orderly way, submitting to God so that your ministry edifies the whole body of Christ. And I think that makes a much better point of learning in stillness, not being disruptive, and submitting yourself to the teaching of the Lord, not to the teaching of one particular person or the teacher of one particular man. This also goes right back to the situation that we're in in Ephesus. We already talked about there are lots of different false teachers. There's disputes. There's people who are trying to make themselves sound good and intellectualism. And a lot of the women who, mind you, had never been taught before, maybe are getting a little bad influence and are starting to preach and say things that are contrary to the gospel. And so there's another reason why Paul is saying, learn with all quietness and submissiveness. Learn the right things. And when you learn the right things, then we'll talk. Like in Corinthians when he says women should prophesy, women should pray, and he tells them how to and what to wear. Here, it's a whole totally different situation. This is the big part. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, if I were to go, let's start at the very beginning. Everyone would know what I'm talking about, right? Julie Andrews, best musical ever made. Love that musical. Um, that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's not reciting the creation story, but he's bringing it back to mind. Everyone who heard this would have known exactly what he was talking about. They would have been able to go through the whole first, second, third Genesis in their head and go through the creation story, and that's what he's pointing back to. So what he's really saying is, women, remember where you came from. 
that doesn't make this text any easier, does it? As a matter of fact, it just makes it harder. One of my favorite translations or interpretations or exegesis of creation story is done by Matthew Henry. He's a 16th century Presbyterian nonconformist clergyman, according to Wikipedia, which, as we all know, is the best place to find information. He has a beautiful explanation, and it goes something like this. Woman was made out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. This is radical for the 16th century, when some people were still debating whether women even had souls at the time. Seriously. Um, I don't think Paul would necessarily disagree with this. He's making a very specific point in Ephesus that the Artemis cult in which women were priestesses and set above everyone else, including men, that he's cautioning women not to take their newfound freedom and to go too far with it and want to become like the priestesses in art of the Artemis temple. He's saying, you're not meant to be above the men. No one is meant to be above them. You're not meant to be above them, and they're not meant to be above you. Don't take this newfound learning that you have and go too far with it. Don't take this newfound learning that you have and try and be authoritative with it. Don't overcompensate. Don't become loud and claim a higher place than men. Another part that I find very interesting in this is it says, I do not permit. This is Paul, or we believe Paul, the writer, writing this. It doesn't say God does not permit. It doesn't say the Lord told me he does not permit. It says I do not permit. I, a human, do not permit. I think that's a really interesting caveat that sets in front of there. So it's not necessarily a command for all time, but rather a caution for the interim, a caution for this specific point in time in this specific situation. We know Paul reminds us in Galatians 3.28 that we are no longer man and woman. And that's, that's very specific. There's neither Jew or Greek, nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and no female. No male and no female. We probably always read that wrong. I've always read that wrong in my head. I've always read there is no male or female. But there's no male and no female. And this is going back to the same creation story. This is actually quoting the creation story, no male and female. That's the same phrase they would have used in the creation story, for you are all one in Christ. So Paul in Galatians is already telling us the creation story is part of a restoration story. It's part of a restoration back to no male and female, no differences between the two, no differences between Jew nor Greek. But here in this situation, this is how I want you to act. Paul focuses specifically on the woman's role in creation and its sinful downfall. I am not a theologian, nor have I studied theology at seminary, but as a midwife, I do know a thing or two about childbirth. It's kind of my job. And in my opinion, Paul is saying, women, this is how you've been traditionally been categorized, as the evil temptress, the downfall of humanity, the vessel through which sin entered the world. But instead, be exalted as co-creators with Christ. You are uniquely gifted. We can take 23 chromosomes and a little bit of protein from you guys, sorry, and 40 weeks later, there's a human being that enters the world, like a whole new life. And they don't even really need anything but breast milk for a whole year. And that's all on us. That's awesome. Like, that's the gift that we were given. And not only... Were we vessels through which evil entered the world, but then we also got to become the vessel through which the Savior entered the world. And now Paul is saying, use this life-giving force for good and faith and love and holiness. 
Don't take it as you're the downfall of humanity. Take it as you can be co-creators with life, with Christ. You can create life. Use that power within you to create life around you, whether it's through actual childbirth, whether it's through helping those in need, whether it's through using the, like Lydia, using the amount of resources that she had to help the church. Use that life-giving force for the better, for the good. With all of this in mind, and with your newfound place in the body of Christ, this is how you should dress, this is how you should pray, this is how you should worship, and this is how you should use your whole mind, body, and spirit. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, I think it's very important to make the distinction here that Paul is not saying women are only saved through childbirth. Just like in, just like in James, I believe, Acts are no better than faith. The act of childbirth is no better than faith and love and holiness and self-control. Those are the most important things. Those are the most important things for both women and men. Those are the most important things to focus on in Ephesus back then. Those are the most important things to focus on now in our lives here daily in Salisbury, Maryland, or wherever you may be going. So now that we've gone through prayer, what does it mean? How do we do it? How do we worship in holy ways. Next Sunday, we're going to be looking at what is the order of the church? Now that we've ordered worship, now that we've ordered prayer, how do we order the church?